The Athletic. Coming up after an eventful weekend in the Premier League, we'll discuss Manchester City's demolition of Manchester United. We'll have details from David Ornstein's column on Chelsea's move for Christopher Nkunku. And after another defeat at the weekend, Bruno Large has been sacked as Wolves manager. I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. We are a different team when we have a striker in front of us. And we, we don't have Nokia with Raul, we don't have Nokia with Sasa. And we need to solve it now with, with Diego. I'm not sure what the identity is. They try not to be a counter-attacking team, have a bit more possession. But at the moment, they are not creating enough. Bruno Large has been sacked by Wolverhampton Wanderers. I think there'll be players in there going, Connor? But he is us, he represents us. Naturally, when things aren't going well for you, players are talking and we're going, Connor wouldn't have allowed that. So let's start with the Wolves story then, that they've sacked their head coach, Bruno Large. It's understood that he was informed on Sunday that he'd be leaving following a poor run of form, which has seen them win just one game this season. Uh, I'm joined by the Athletics' David Ornstein and our Wolves reporter, Steve Madeley, who's written in depth about Large's downfall. Because it's not just this season, is it, Steve? It's not, no. You can, you can trace it back to the end of last season when they went seven games without a win. And from things we've been told... I think relations between Large and the, and the players took a real hammer in around that time. I think they generally saw him as quite distant. I think there were a lot of lengthy tactical meetings, but not too many one-on-one chats, which they'd been used to under Nuno, who was obviously hugely successful before. And I think j- j- just that run of results kind of set the tone. And he, need, he needed a flying start to this season, didn't get it. And from that point on, really, it's the, the writing was kind of on the wall. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because when things were going well under Bruno Large, one of the great things that was praised about him was his tactical detail and the information he was giving to the to the players, which was maybe more than they got from Nuno. So, I mean, it, it swings and roundabouts depending on the form. Yeah, I think there's different, different approaches. Large famously introduced the... Um, the meeting room into the training ground with, with the lovely plush branded seats and the and, and the big tactics screen at the front, which Nuno didn't do. Nuno, I'm told, barely did any meetings. That there was generally the, the the usual pre-match one, but other than that, everything was done on the training ground. Everything was done almost almost one to one, moving players around on the training field. And Bruno Large was was completely completely different to that. There was a lot a lot of classroom theoretical stuff, and I think it probably just in the players' eyes, just went from one extreme too far to the other. Before we explore more what went wrong and maybe what comes next, what are Wolves and what do they want to be? I think when Fosun first brought the club, there were lofty ambitions to break into the to- into the top six, potentially break into, into the Champions League. I think there's been an acceptance now that that's going to cost a hell of a lot of money, which is probably beyond what they want to spend. So the, the new long-term plan for Wolves is to become sustainable in the Premier League year on year, which is obviously under the more threat than it's been for quite a while this, this season, you would have to say, and to then grow the brand in terms of esports and marketing and visibility in, chi- in China and the Far East. They've done things like launching a record label. Lots of they still want to crack the top six, they say, but but they think they now need to do it in a a longer term way without pumping loads of loads of their own money into it. But on the field, what I mean, I mean, don't get me started on the record label. But I mean, what on the field? 
what what kind of football are they meant to be playing? Because, I mean, I don't know what David thinks about this as well, but there are times that I can watch Hulls and I think, bloody hell, they're good, right? I mean, they, they may not, they may, may not, you know, hit five or six, but I sometimes watch and think, God, you know, Neves and Moutinho and Jose Sarr in goal and the wingers that they have, you know, you can be really entertained by them. And then, I mean, this is football as well. Sometimes you watch them and it is as flat as anything. And I can't, Maybe it says more about me, but I just can't work out sometimes what they're meant to be. And I think that was the big the big bone of contention with a lot of supporters and some of the players. I think I think that Bruno Large came in with promises of moving moving the walls on from the, the highly successful, but but what became quite quite a dow brand of football in the final years under Nuno. As I understand it, his dream team was high press, front foot, possession based. But that kind of dream of his almost became like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Like, however, the longer they spent trying to get there, it just never, never seemed to get any closer. And it did, it did become certainly at the end of last season and the start of this season, which is when I've kind of taken over covering the club. It has been incredibly flat. They they moved the ball through midfield quite nicely, like, like you say, with, with the talented players like Moutinho and and Deves. But there's there's very little end product. I was really impressed by them towards the end of last season. Uh, they were challenging, weren't they, for a top six finish? Um, they were pushing. At one point, people were even saying the final Champions League spot when they were in a bit of a mix with Arsenal, Man United, West Ham, Tottenham, and then I think they lost. Was it at Arsenal to that late deflected Lacazette goal and against West Ham in the same week? And from that moment on, the style, the results, seemed to completely tail off. Which is baffling because even recently I was at the 1-0 defeat uh, they suffered against Tottenham. And I just looked around the pitch and Neves was running the show. Neto was very impressive. Guedes was already making an impact. Uh, Nunes, I was so impressed by him. And you just kind of think to yourself, they spent, what, £100 more in the summer transfer market? So they were backed heavily by Fosun. And I'm with Mark that it doesn't seem to be a great deal of reasons for how such a talented group that has been heavily invested in hasn't clicked. They're clearly well below where they should be. And let's see if they go again in January. This is a club that, as as a lot of people know, David, has has George Mendes running through it, of course. For, for those that don't know, just just remind people of, of the influence there. Everybody knows that he's one of the most renowned agents, referred to often as a super agent. Um, and you can actually read more about this on The Athletic. There was a piece done a while ago detailing exactly what level of influence he has. Uh, there's some kind of association formally with Foson. Uh, Steve may be able to tell us a little bit more. But essentially, uh, he's embedded with Wolves. Um, he's heavily influential around their recruitment, appointment of managers, uh, the signing and selling, loaning of players, decisions at the highest level, alongside, of course, Jeff Shee, who is in day-to-day control of the club on behalf of the ownership. And so even when they've had sort of directors of football in place, there's an understanding at Wolves and throughout the industry that George Mendes runs the show. He's heavily involved at a number of clubs and has influence owing to his uh, Gestafute uh, empire, um, which sees players and coaches 
all over the world, but it's a pretty unique situation at Wolves. One, we don't seem to have seen anywhere else in the Premier League, at least. That's why the appointment of the successor to Bruno Lage will be heavily dependent on George Mendes. And before we come on to the successor then, Steve, given given what David has explained there, Given we've talked about them spending over hundred million pounds in the summer, who ran that? Who ran the transfer policy this summer? That's a really good question because the transfer policy seemed to do a sharp about turn in the in the middle of the window. In the everything we were hearing from the people on the ground at Wolves for the first half of that, that transfer window was that it was going to be a fairly frugal summer that they were going to have to not quite sell to buy, but but certainly almost balance, balance the books. And there was an expectation that, that Ruben Neves would go and that would fund the transfer spending. That didn't happen. Neves stayed. So we expected on, uh, only a, a fairly modest outlay. And then all of a sudden, everything, everything changed and they went out and splashed out a lot of money on on, Gu- on Guedes and on Nunes particu- particularly, which does, without knowing for, for certain, it does suggest strongly that Bruno Large and George Mendes have had their say and have got their way really with Jeff Shee. I'll just make a quick point for and against Wolves. For rotten luck in the striker department when it comes to injuries to Raul Jimenez and we all saw what he was capable of uh, before and even after his head injury but physical problems have troubled him leading to the recruitment of Sasa Kalajic from Stuttgart. Uh, a significant outlay especially for a, a player who has not been part of the George Mendes network, which is where many Wolves acquisitions tend to come from. And he suffers the cruel misfortune of an ACL injury on his debut, meaning that they have to go back into the market for a free agent in the form of Diego Costa, who's not been playing. There weren't many alternative options. And Bruno Large pointed to that after the West Ham defeat, how many managers would be able to um, be competitive without a recognised and and um, reliable goal scorer in attack. Now, people you speak to at Wolves say, well, there's enough talent in the attacking midfield positions to be able to mitigate that. But it's a pretty raw deal that he's been dealt in that part. On the flip side, the decision to loan out Connor Cody to Everton. Okay, fair enough. You revert to a back four. That's a, a coach's decision and, and Large was entitled to that. But at West Ham, they went back to a back five and they put their best player, arguably, Ruben Neves in there at the heart of it. While Connor Cody is scoring for Everton, becoming a bit of a cult hero, playing fantastically well, likely to go to the World Cup. And as Steve wrote in his piece in the build-up to this sacking, he's exactly who Wolves would have needed from a player perspective, but also what he gave to that club in terms of unity, chemistry, character, camaraderie in the dressing room, a British core. And that seems to be a a glaring error from my perspective. He's also flourishing at Everton in a back four. And I don't think that irony will, (laughs) will, will be lost on some Wolves fans. And also, Steve, Troy Deeney said to me last night on Match of the Day 2, as soon as someone like Connor Cody goes and then flourishes elsewhere, players within the Wolves dress room will be going, hang on. I mean, even even if he wasn't flourishing at Everton, they'd be going, hang on a minute, what's happened there, given what an influential character he is? And now they'd be going, well, hang on, you've let him go, and he's doing really well at Everton. What is going on? Yeah, and it wasn't just Conor Cody. I mean, Conor Cody is, is the, the real standout example of it, but they also let Willie Bolly, who's an, who's an experienced, influential character, go. Go. They didn't make any real attempt to keep Romain Sace when his when his contract came to an end. He was 
another influential character. The whole summer smacked of trying to have a massive culture shift and move out a few of the the Nuno loyalists, if you, if you like, and, and almost reshape the squad in, in Bruno Large's image, which is fine, but, but then it has to work pretty, pretty quickly because if it doesn't, people start, start to ask questions. As David says, letting Cody go has a little thread of logic to it as long as you stick with the back, with the back four, which, which was the whole point towards letting him go. But as soon as you go to a back three and put Ruben Neves as, you, as your sweeper, it, it just looks ridiculous, doesn't it? Is it lazy to assume that the next head coach will be Portuguese? It's not lazy because we've seen the track record and we know the influence that George Mendes wields at Molyneux. So there's a very good chance that there will be another Portuguese manager or candidates within the mix. And this morning when we record this, reports emerged, whether they're accurate or not, I've not had the chance to check out, that Ruben Amorim is possibly the favourite or among the options uh, to replace Large. Now, he is at Sporting Lisbon and he's building a really good reputation within the industry. He, you may remember, was linked publicly quite late with the Chelsea job that went to Graham Potter. It emerged that Chelsea had spoken to him, that they thought very highly of him and continued to do so. And I think by interviewing him or meeting with him, they wanted to sort of send a message to him that although he might not have been quite right for the Chelsea role at this point in his career, they've got their eye on him. They'll be thinking about him for the future. They're impressed with his pedigree and progress and there is admiration there. It seems when you hear things like that, that somebody like that is going to end up in a big league like the Premier League uh, sooner rather than later. So I wasn't particularly surprised when I saw reports of his name come up. Um, I don't know any others at this point in time. And when I checked on this very late last night, there was no person lined up ready to come in and take training on Monday when Wolves return, which is quite interesting because ahead of this decision, the feeling you got from people around Wolves was that they won't make the final call or the announcement on Bruno Lage until they do have a succession plan in place. But they did. I think it started to leak in Portugal that he was going. And then the official announcement came. The plan wasn't to announce it on Sunday. It was going to be early this week. And so there's an interim coaching staff in place. I think they would like to get somebody in ahead of the Chelsea game. A trip to Stamford Bridge is a bit of a shot to nothing. It would be ironic if that was Amarim. And then they play Nottingham Forest after that. So two weeks to prepare for a the Morgan Gibbs-White derby and a run of potentially easier fixtures in theory. Steve, who are you hearing, if anyone? And the follow-up as well, finally, is do you think they might need to get a move on with this? Because there could be other clubs. We're recording this on a Monday morning before Leicester and Nottingham Forest play tonight. And it's not unreasonable to think that whoever loses that, their manager could be in a in a sticky situation there might be rumours about both of them actually and maybe another couple of clubs as well so do you think they feel like they need to get a a, a move on to an extent i think the only counter to that, to that is that because of what we've said about george mendes and his heavy involvement wolves to some extent exist in, the, in their own little micro microclimate when they're, when they're looking for managers so there could be managers there are almost certainly managers that wolves, wolves would be looking at that maybe other other clubs wouldn't 
So they probably will be fishing in a slightly different pool. David mentioned Amarim. Um, he, he's going to be a strong candidate because he ticks a lot of a lot of boxes. The two big ones being that he's young and ambitious and that he, and he's Portuguese. David might know better than me, but the one box that I'm not sure he does tick is actually being a Mendes client. I'm not I'm not aware of, of any current direct links with with Mendes. But as always with Mendes, you don't need necessarily to, to have a direct link. He, he does have a lot a lot of kind of links within links. So I certainly wouldn't rule that one out. Again, I've not been able to get very far on, on this yet, but the uh, the other two names that uh, were being linked last night uh, last last night were um, Sergio Conceição at uh, Porto, who is a Mendes client. But on the face of it, he's had he's had such a successful time at Porto and has got such a a, a profile. You do you do wonder whether he might hold out for a, a bigger, slightly less risky job. And also um, uh, Pedro Martins, who was at Olympiacos, who's also and this client who would be freely available and has always been keen to work in the Premier League. So there's, there's another one. And the one that I've forgotten about, actually, is, um, is Julian Lopetegui at, at Sevilla, who is currently still employed, but is under, we're led to believe, fairly severe pressure. And interestingly, he's the one who, who Foson wanted in 2016 when they first came into Wolves. It reached the point where, I'm told, the press release was already written and announced him as, the Wolves, as a Wolves manager. And he then got offered the Spain job and, and just felt that he couldn't turn that down. So if he were to become available uh, in the next few days, then th- that might make things very interesting. Just quickly on Mark's really salient point about other managers and potential vacancies, there's uh, said to be big pressure on Chris Wilder at Middlesbrough, on Steve Bruce at West Bromwich Albion. I tell you what, the pressure on Chris Wilder is to the extent that within the last five minutes of us recording this on Monday morning, they've sacked him. Wow. So that pressure on Chris Wilder... Um, was real. Wow, <laughs> was I real. Hadn't seen that. So, um, okay. uh, Ralph Hassenhuttle at Southampton, not from me, but Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa. Um, I, I, I've seen quite a lot of discontent among the fan base and, and sections of the media. Uh, the Bournemouth permanent vacancy is still there, and, and managers have, have been linked with that. So, we're coming into a really interesting time now. If you escaped as a manager under pressure, the international break that's just gone. Uh, you might not be so lucky when it comes to the World Cup. And that starts in mid-November, which is looming into sight. And in the case of Wolves, I think they actually acted pretty swiftly. Uh, it sounded like the fans were unanimously against Bruno Lage continuing. And once that was really felt by the hierarchy, there was no way back. And it seems that clubs in this period are going to take pretty decisive action. So uh, I'm afraid it could be sacking season. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. De Bruyne, Holland! We are in the presence of something really special. Let's talk Manchester City now with our Manchester City writer, Sam Lee, who was at the Etihad yesterday to see them destroy uh, Manchester United in the derby. Like Genuinely, it's very difficult at this early stage to find something new to say about Erling Haaland. But actually, the front three 
clicked in a way that probably we've seen for the first time this season. And when I say that, Sam, we're looking at, at Haaland's assists, actually, as well as the goals that he scored. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, in terms of finding new things to say about Haaland, it's been so difficult because there's not really been a week. There was Grealish last time against Wolves, actually. But there's not really been a week when somebody else has been the standout. And there's not really been, a, oh yeah, Foden's having a great season, let's talk about this. Grealish is having a great season, let's talk about this. Because obviously he's been injured. Even De Bruyne going into the game with six assists in the Premier League, which is more than anybody else. I don't think De Bruyne has been having his best season. You know, I think he's still kind of getting that radar on, basically, to, to, to find his teammates as consistently as he has done. But yes, you're absolutely right. Yesterday it did click. And obviously the standouts are Haaland and, and Foden getting the hat-tricks. But I thought Grealish was really good. The way that City kind of manoeuvred those spaces to open up. You know, with like kind of a couple of passes and then all of a sudden somebody's got the ball in midfield or Grealish has got the ball. He just got acres of space to run into. Grealish ran at them, didn't he? Which is something that has been uh, uh, lacking really in Grealish since joining City. That that direct dribbling winger that we saw at, at Villa, he's been a lot more measured at City in some ways. If there's no spaces to run into, then you, you can't do yeah. it. You know, there, there has been times, of course, when, you know, Guardiola talks about him wanting to be more aggressive and needing to be more aggressive and that is partly you know if you have got a, a defender or maybe even two defenders in front of you, you do do try and go past them if you can it, it, I think the, the difficulty for Grealish is he's, it's about not losing the ball he knows it's about not losing the ball for City then he's trying to strike that balance between oh, I'd quite like to yeah. skin this guy but I don't want to lose the ball so he's got to try and work it out so yeah you're right there have been times when he's maybe not, not done that so much but that mainly the big difference why he did it yesterday it's because he had all that space to run into. And that's why, you know, he did have a really good game, even though the other two got hat-tricks. He did have a really good game for carrying that ball yeah. so well and taking it to United. But yeah, it, it did all click. I put in my article, so the City against Liverpool games recently, they've been so good, haven't they? The two 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 draws last season were amazing. Just like the high, such a high-level quality, technical ability, tactical battles, managers reacting in games, players demanding the ball in difficult situations, the managers trying something new. It's like a high watermark of Premier League standard and that's what you get when two top teams kind of go toe-to-toe. But I think what the United and City games have become in that same period since the start of last season is a top team kind of being able to do exactly what they want to do. Because if you think about the two derbies last year, City were so dominant, weren't they? So dominant. And And yesterday they were not so much dominant, but just ruthless. Those spaces to run into, they did ruthlessly exploit them. And again, to bring it back to your question, it really did click for that front three and De Bruyne as well, because they could just kind of carry the ball and just use their own individual ability to find each other and finish. We don't need to go back over last year's derby, Sam. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yesterday you, was it? bad enough. We don't We don't need to go back back over last year as well. Um, I, I'm lo- I'll bring David in a second. I'm loath to do this. Because as soon as you do this with virtually any player or players at Manchester City and praise them and say, right, they they could be that future trio for the next three years, five years, whatever it may be. Pep then drops someone for three months and you sort of then only see them off, only see them off the bench, you know what I mean? But you, you looked at the way those three were yesterday and you think, and this will come on to David and me with Foden and a new deal, you think, my God, with those three could could tear this up for the next five years at the at the minimum if they wanted to yeah and obviously you've got Alvarez as well who's 22 and he'll come in so if we're talking long term you know front threes and combinations and stuff absolutely in terms of you know never mind five years but the next couple of weeks because like you say it it could always change I was thinking during the game (laughs) yesterday 
as it was unfolding, you know, 3 0 up early on, 4 0 by half time, and Grealish playing well, I was like, Grealish, what Grealish needs today is a goal just to kind of build on the goal against Wolves and kind of get everybody talking. Oh, Grealish was great, because obviously this morning, without him scoring, everyone's talking about Foden and Haaland, apart from us, I guess. But in Guardiola's head, I think he will know that, Guard- that Grealish obviously had a great game and he did all the things that he needed him to do, and he was kind of integral to how City moved the ball up the pitch so quickly. So, in terms of those three in particular keeping their places, you know, maybe there'll need to be some rotation for the Champions League in midweek. But when it comes to Southampton next week, when it comes to Liverpool maybe the week after, I'm sure those three will get those chances because they did so well yesterday. Guardiola hasn't really got any reason beyond needing to keep players fresh to drop them. So yeah, that is something we, we you know, we might get used to seeing in the next couple of weeks and then maybe five years. <laughs> um, and, and David, you've got a line in your column uh, this week that Foden is in line for a new deal. Yeah, it's been well documented um, that this was close and um, it's actually been very protracted because Foden's had some changes in his representation. But finally now City uh, do have pretty much everything in place and they hope that he will sign that new contract this week. So it's been agreed, but they just need to put the finishing touches on a few final points. I understand that it will run until 2027 and it's yet another key player tied down for City. I don't think this was ever in doubt. I think everybody wanted the same outcome for obvious reasons, but it was really complicated at times. I actually, when I was putting that column item together, uh, looked back over a few old articles and there were suggestions that this was going to happen a year ago. Uh, I thought the the article I was reading in one of the papers was from last week. It was from a year ago saying virtually the same thing. So I don't want to be proved wrong, but um, I think it's different this time round. And, and that's absolutely massive for City. Foden is going to give them the best years of his career, maybe all of his career. We know the backstory to him. And he seems in a brilliant patch at the moment for club and country, which is a more heartwarming and encouraging sign for Gareth Southgate heading into the World Cup. And that bond he seems to have, not just from a footballing point of view, but from uh, like a friendship relationship sense with with Haaland is scary. And, and, and just one point I wanted to make on what Sam said earlier, completely unscientific and not stats-based. Uh, I'm not clever enough for that. But I seem to see in the biggest matches in particular in the past with City and Pep Guardiola, a lot of stress because a lot of the time they didn't have that goal scorer when Sergio Aguero was injured and maybe Gabriel Jesus wasn't in form or playing in a different position and they went for a false nine. Stress on the pitch about where the finishing touch was going to come from. Stress on the touchline with Guardiola. Not only is is Haaland, of course, occupying defenders and creating the space that Sam talked about, but he seems to be lowering the stress levels in the City team. And that's liberating them to play the football they can and want. And it's also liberating Guardiola on the touchline. I think he looks more relaxed, understandably, and at ease than at any time in recent seasons. And that's why I was going to throw it to Sam on whether you think he's going to sign this new contract that City would love him to. It hasn't been signed yet. He's out of contract next summer. I don't think they'll put a time limit on it and they'll be optimistic. If he's not going to sign, they'll need to know sooner rather than later so they can succession plan. But presumably he's going to stay put. Yeah, it's funny. I think City was saying at the end of last season that nothing would happen until 
the end of this season, which you think wouldn't give him much wiggle room if he said, actually, I've had enough. I, I get the feeling, I can't remember if, maybe Guardiola said this himself, maybe this is just something I've heard, I can't remember, but I get the feeling during the World Cup, it's perfect time to do it, isn't it? A um, couple yeah. of the years ago, we had this same situation. Um, will he stay, won't he stay, got into the last year of his contract. And then he signed the deal the end of October, start of November. I think the World Cup makes perfect sense to sort it out. In terms of City's optimism, I had heard, this was just before the Sevilla game, that you know it's basically all up in the air. Nobody knows what's going to happen. And last time, I don't think Guardiola even knew. And then in the end, he was convinced and he, and he did it. Um, this time around, I think it's the same. But before City were like, oh, we're genuinely not sure. But as of start of September, I think they'd had a few more encouraging noises and they felt a bit more optimistic. But obviously don't take that as it's definitely going to happen. The only thing I would say but that might be different to last time, Sam, and I'm only going on listening to him, listening to him, watching him, and actually David's point on it all feeling quite stress-free at the moment, is is he comes across as just really settled. Yeah, settled. Um, you know, he knows he's got that confidence from the board. He's comfortable. You know, I think one of the things he really appreciated, and maybe this is one of the things that City did to kind of show him and convince him to stay, is, you know, he was worried about defensive depth, you know, with Laporte coming back from injury. Um, Stone's fitness being up and down Ake's fitness being up and down he was worried about centre-backs and then he went and signed Manuel Akanji at the end of the transfer window and he's turned out to be brilliant so Guardiola's delighted about that and he's kind of said on the record you know he's thankful for the club I'm sure he said for giving me this gift you know it's it's like that Um, he he is supported he does feel that Um, I mean I do feel like there's a certain just calmness about him because of this stage of his career he's kind of been there and and done it and seen it all and you know whether it's are you going to win the Champions League are you going to win this game you know going into the last day of last season you know if they didn't beat Villa or whatever he'd still be proud of them because you know that's life that's football and they've done all they can and that's all you can ask of footballers you know he's, he's very much at that kind of stage of his career anyway but yeah in terms of feeling supported and comfortable at City he just does 100% there, there is nowhere else he could go where it would be better you know one day he'll want a new challenge he's not going to stay forever but in terms of motivation and you know you say stress-free, you know, relatively. It's still Guardiola. But you just see how annoyed he was during the second half yesterday and how he said they're not good enough in terms of their build-up process afterward. But yeah, having Haaland and this new challenge and thinking, God, what could we achieve here with this guy? Exactly like David said with Aguero putting the ball away. But, if, you know, times 10. It certainly is tempting. And I mean, I do... I'm, I'm wary of this, you know, being taken by City fans is like, confirmation is going to happen but I do get the feeling he will sign that contract because I can't maybe I'll share that confidence that he's got in his employers that he's in the best place that he he can possibly be thanks Sam see you soon this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
And then before we go, David, just the top line from your column this week uh, on the RB Leipzig striker, Christopher Nkunku, and uh, what's going on with him and Chelsea. Yeah, so the reports emerged last week that Chelsea were in for Nkunku. Uh, it came as a bit of a surprise because obviously the window shut and we're a long way away from next summer when you would imagine uh, there would be a, quite a fierce battle for him. Uh, they hadn't really been linked with him either, although they have got huge admiration, as we know, for the Red Bull model and some of their individuals, especially on an executive level and their structure and their multi-club system, etc. Gvardiol was another player they were linked with from um, RB Leipzig. Um, but then it was suggested that he had undergone some medical tests ahead of a proposed move to Chelsea ahead of the 2023 to 24 season. And we reveal in the column that he has actually signed, as we understand it, a pre-contract agreement to join Chelsea and that Chelsea have committed to paying in excess of the 60 million euros release clause in his contract. The reason they've done that is because the release clause does not become effective until next summer. And so Chelsea wanted to secure his services ahead of time and avoid any potential battle. I think there was some competition right now from other clubs, including some in the Premier League's upper reaches, but it's pretty much done and dusted. Those medical tests initially at least have taken place. And it seems that one of Europe's most exciting forwards in the last year, especially, is going to be joining this revolution at Stamford Bridge, which is going to see a sporting director come on board at some point. There are a range of second round meetings taking place over that position this week. And if you thought that the new Chelsea ownership were going to rest once the transfer window just gone shut, then uh, you've got another thing coming because from everything you hear, they are working round the clock. And as Nkunku shows, they're trying to get some serious work done. Good stuff, David. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Pleasure. That's it. David's column in full is on The Athletic. If you're not already a subscriber, head to theathletic.com slash football pod to get it for a pound a month for the first six months. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.